BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and on this episode, a deadly virus grips the world, but its potential victims and public health officials are slow to take the right kind of action. We'll discuss the slow burn of the 80s pandemic in Fiasco, the AIDS crisis. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I see what was done there with that intro. Kevin, slow burn. Yes, I do. But Kevin, I we should mention we are not sitting next to each other right now. Uh, oh, this you, is true. Yeah. Do, and, and you may sound a little different to our listeners. Do you want to explain why we are not sitting next to each other and why you may sound a little different? Yeah, Rebecca is in Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where she is now by herself because I am in my office on what is probably the last day of my COVID convalescence. Fingers crossed it's your last day. Yeah, I guess this makes me the third and hopefully the final crime writer to uh, contract COVID this spring. But I just took a, a test not long ago. And, you know, the positive line was real thin, a real thin, like almost not there. So I feel like I'm I'm 12 to 24 hours away. So you're from, like a uh, little bit pregnant being right good. now, like a little bit pregnant. If pregnancy worked in reverse, yes. <laughs> well, we'll see. And so you're up, you're like, what, like 20 feet above me right now? Is that where you are? Yeah, I'm in my office recording separately and we're all on Zoom together. So I like um, it. I like it. You're getting, yeah. you're getting the Laura and Toby experience right now. Yes. And uh, Laura and Toby are disappointed because they know we can't be secretly fighting That's right, while yes. we're recording. Also, so I know. there's no drama. Question, Kevin, how do I look? Do I look okay? Uh, a little blurry. Yeah, I guess your camera's not on HD, so right. I guess that benefits you. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Ooh, I don't see any wrinkles. I actually, I get this now you know. I have my Zoom settings to like maximum uh, image like enhancement for work. Yeah. So I always look younger than I do. FYI. All right. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, my friend and colleague, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. And also joining us is uh, Rocky Flintstone, who is sitting on the back of my chair this evening. <laughs> Very determined. Oh, oh. Wow. And he just yeah, Rocky is, is very frisky tonight. He he is. You know, I don't know, spring fever or something. Rocky. Well, before we started, he jumped on your chest and like... I know. Harvey Weinstein'd you. <laughs> Rocky did. This is like, this isn't one of those cat things where the cat is like 
calmly in the background. Rocky is legitimately photo bombing, like completely video bombing this episode right now. It's actually very funny. And finally, our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. All right. So, Kevin, this is Monday's episode of Crime Writers On. And as uh, loyal listeners know, we put out two episodes a week. What is coming out on this coming Thursday's show? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the new German language documentary on Netflix. It's called Gladbeck, The Hostage Crisis. It's pretty wild, huh? It is. For those who haven't seen it yet, we'd say take a moment this week to check it out. It's only about an hour and a half, and it's all raw footage from a 1988 bank heist hostage crisis that all of a sudden, like, Went on the road with all the press and police along. It's just a crazy story. Yes. We didn't even watch it in German, which we almost always do. We almost always watch it in, in, with subtitles. This is one of the first things we've watched actually with dubbing, which was quite they the experience. That? They did. Yeah. Didn't you notice how awful it was with the dubbing? Ugh. It did. And I we didn't. Watched it that I, way. I watched it in German. Yeah. I watched it with the oh, subtitles. I, I can't it imagine it dubbed. Yeah. The dubbed was horrible. It was wild. All right. Um, well, we have a lot to talk about. So I'd like to just get to this episode's review. Uh, you guys all good with that? If so, yep. I'm yep. going to go ahead and drop that first clip right now. Some people thought that if you were exposed to hundreds of different semen, you could become allergic to it. And that allergy would cause a reaction to damage your immune system. Some people thought it was an environmental cause. Since many people who have sex with each other go to the same places, maybe there was some kind of contaminant. An unexplained cancer is moving through New York's gay community. Throughout the early 1980s, as more men die, its origins remain a mystery. Meanwhile, battle lines form among activists, scientists, politicians, and the public at large. Plague! We are in the middle of a fucking plague. We are in the worst shape we have ever, ever, ever been in. In a world unsure of how to respond, many of the stakeholders refused to make the changes needed to stem the tide, which includes embracing safe sex, providing clean needles, screening the blood supply, and expediting the drug testing process. There are certain things all epidemics have in common. The confusion and fear the scapegoating and paranoia, the difficulty of addressing a new existential threat that requires human beings to change their behavior en masse. Available on Audible, Slow Burn creator Leon Nafok is out with Fiasco, the AIDS crisis. The podcast looks into the forgotten twists and turns of the epidemic's early days when a diagnosis was a death sentence. Nafok brings us those who struggled to keep the infected alive and get society to care. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Fiasco, the AIDS crisis. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Toby Ball, can we just talk about Leon Nafok's style? Because I do think his style is particularly distinctive. I felt like when I started listening to this podcast, in many ways, it felt like coming home, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he doesn't sound like anybody else. And it's actually, you know, I, I feel like it's almost tailor-made for me. You know, he doesn't really insert himself personally in the narrative, basically at all. But his storytelling and then also his, you know, his delivery uh, is, is very distinctive. The writing is always excellent. And then he also has this sort of kaleidoscopic 
way of telling stories where it's, you know, he's picking just certain things to focus on. And by building them all up together, it gives you a full story of what's going on. And it's been really effective for him since the very beginning when with slow burn and the uh, Nixon Watergate stuff right through here. And I think the choices that he made about things to focus on brought up both the things that are sort of important that I think I kind of remembered about the early days of AIDS and, and, and continuing on through when it became bigger. But then also things, uh, particularly kind of social things, which I, I hadn't really known before. And the way he kind of brings them out, I thought was really compelling. So yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's like, I, I think there's a handful of podcasters where you're like, oh yeah, this is, you know, so-and-so's podcast. And it is nice to hear it. You know what you're going to get, and it's going to be high quality and thought-provoking and all this stuff. Kevin, what are your thoughts about that? Because the one thing that I will say about Leon is that, you know, aside from his narration style and sort of like the thorough look at history, I always think about, um, you know, the Watergate season where he started with Martha Mitchell, right? And I do feel like this shares DNA with that, where he begins with a voice, right? He starts with, you know... The voice of someone who was there at the very beginning and it's always like somebody that you don't really feel like you know and that's like a thread throughout but yet Leon is very much your reliable journalistic narrator who is not part of the story yet is like there for you if that makes sense yeah I mean I agree with Toby that Leon is a unique voice in not only just sort of the way that he puts together the podcast but just philosophically you know, Dan Carlin may have the corner on like the long form seven hour history narrative, but this is really Leon A. Fox Lane, right? And the funny thing is that he, did, he really isn't doing anything special in the sense that, look, it's narration, soundbite, more narration, archival clip, but it's all done so well and puts together thematically a really great narrative. He just sort of finds those little things that demonstrate the bigger historical picture and a lot of times it's individuals it's those sliding door moments where things could have gone a completely different way and instead didn't but just like he did with slow burn with fiasco it is about the building tension and the the slow rolling thunder of our historical moments Laura, what do you think about leon's timing of this series because he says at the very beginning that he chose this topic because of the COVID-19 pandemic, very, mm-hmm. very different disease, right? Yes. Uh, very, very different timeline, very, very different pathogen, very, very different sort of level of scale and scope and speed and government response. I mean, it's 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 not the same. However, this is the moment he chose to do it. And I actually think there are a tremendous amount of parallels. And of course, there's one character in particular who pops up in both stories. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, Anthony Fauci is like, does the man ever age? Like, I'm like, here he is. Well, his voice ages, but yeah, I mean, he's not much. Hearing the young Fauci voice was very, like, it's funny to me. Do you ever have any feelings of remorse, of regret that the system works the way it does? It certainly is very difficult to see so many young men suffer and die when we don't have a treatment. That is the most powerful impetus for us, as contradictory as it might sound, to do the study in as scientifically a sound way as possible. But what, what do you think of the choice to tell the story and draw that comparison? It's interesting. I mean, 
yeah, you can say, yeah, there's nothing similar here or there is something similar here. But I, I guess as I was listening to it, I was saying, you know, the AIDS epidemic was very different, you know, in terms of how it was spreading and how it was being responded to. You know, both were global, um, but the AIDS, uh, you know, was we were hearing about it a lot in the U.S. But I think for me, what I was taking from sort of the parallels was that feeling at the beginning when we like think back to March and April of 2020 and here we are and we're all in our houses and we don't know what to do. And we're like, oh my God. And they're like, wash your groceries because you might get groceries. You can't walk outside without a mask. Like we're doing all of these things because people don't really understand COVID and they don't really understand the disease. They're trying to, they're trying to give us the best information they have at the time, we're all at that point, I was anyway, operating from this point of fear of like, I better do this because this is what they say I should do. And when you look at the early days of the AIDS pandemic, you also have this like they are giving out what they think is the best information at the time. When you look at it in hindsight, you're like, wow, this is super homophobic. There's a lot more that was going on. But at the time, it was like, I mean, I remember being in school and learning about AIDS. And it was like, you shouldn't shake hands with anybody. You shouldn't kiss anybody on no the French cheek. kissing. Right. Yes. And it was the same thing. And, and so I can see how as more information comes out in both of these scenarios, we're changing how we're reacting. We're changing how we're responding. We're changing the precautions we're taking. We understand it better. Like, But for me, I think what like resonated as I was listening to it was that when you're in the early stages of something like that, that seems so scary and you're seeing people dying and you're listening to the scientists and the doctors and the people that, you know, you should be listening to and they don't really understand it, you're doing whatever they tell you to do because you're like, holy shit, I better be doing this. And now in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, okay, I didn't necessarily need to leave my groceries outside for two days. But at the time, hey, that's what we were being told to do. You know what I mean? So- in terms of finding that hook that's going to draw the modern audience into feeling like what did it feel like during the early days of the AIDS pandemic, there is certainly that parallel of that that feeling that we all have of, of fear. So here's what I observed when I was listening to this, and I just kept thinking about this because we're obviously talking about two incredibly different viruses, right? But COVID is, is so interesting compared to AIDS. And, and this is like a problem that is so AIDS is so emblematic of a thing, just like drugs, just like the opioids crisis versus the so-called crack epidemic, is that when things happen to marginalized people, like nobody cares, right? And COVID was such an accelerated version of that. And it was very quickly apparent that we were all in danger. So this very rapidly accelerated thing where we were all very afraid. It was very like like very fast that we all sort of caught on and became afraid very, very quickly. But then there was a sort of this collapse of fear where state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, you see this in the politics of the AIDS crisis and like the later episodes with Bill Clinton with the needle exchange stuff. Like some governors were like, well, I don't want to be the person to like close churches and I don't want to be the person to do this. And you see the politics playing out in COVID so much more rapidly and like the political decisions had just a greater impact. I don't know. I just think it's a very interesting time to tell the story. And I really commend Leon for not 
being ham-fisted about drawing those parallels necessarily, but I was thinking about that the entire time I was listening to this, is that COVID is like a macro microcosm of this story. Like we have seen in the last couple of years, like a slinky, a huge but small, but huge but small, but huge but small version of this over and over and over again in the way that COVID has played out. Huge fears that have borne out and then small fears that have not borne out. Like it's it's really, really been astonishing. But there were some really interesting points brought out in this, Kevin, like some stories that I didn't know a lot about. I remember being in the news and feeling like disconnected from. I remember hearing about the bathhouses in San Francisco, for instance, and, you know, sort of the big public uproar around that. One thing that I did not know a lot about was the resistance to it and all of the political figures involved in it, political figures who are still very much in power today. Um, what did you think about that story in particular? Because that was sort of very much at the heart of the civil liberties conversation around protecting the public against AIDS, which I also think very much resonates with the conversation around COVID, but in a very different way. I thought it was an incredibly interesting episode. What did you think about that? Well, the whole thing with the bathhouses was, you know, sort of, I, I understood it peripherally from histories like in the band Played On. And Leon brings it to us in a way that's not moralistic at all. But I really did, so one thing I did not appreciate and learned was, you know, why in an unsafe world for gay people, why they would feel so strongly about the baths. It wasn't just because it's a pleasure palace or something like that, but it's a safe place to get together. But in the end, you're left with, you know, it must have been very tough to come around saying we can't have these bathhouses anymore, but it is the right thing to do. And you don't want to sound like you're not an ally when you look back at history. And if you could talk to you know somebody from San Francisco in the mid 80s and say, yeah, you know, you did fight for these civil rights. Let's hope that this isn't an erosion of civil rights. In this particular case, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. Even Cleve Jones was called a traitor merely for suggesting in an op-ed that gay men practice safe sex. It was a pretty mild call for other sexually active gay men to curtail our activities, to reduce our number of partners. And, you know, I had people scream at me on the street that I was a Nazi. I had people spit on my face. And the fact that there was sort of this natural resistance. This is sort of the through line from the AIDS crisis to the COVID crisis is that people first deny there's an issue and then become angry about it and they don't want to make the big change that will help mitigate that. And so Leon is able to do that in a way that's very enlightening and not moralistic at all. However, when we're talking about the bathhouses, we are talking about actual civil liberties that have been gained. And as Toby, like I kept just thinking like, Putting a mask on your face is not the same as taking away a civil liberty that has been gained, right? And I think this was a very interesting episode for that reason, because I think the episode really drove home what it was that was being lost by this community, which is a stark contrast to asking people to just like put a goddamn mask on their face, right? Like, that's all I kept thinking about, like, this whole time is like, what is being asked of the public during COVID versus what is being asked of this community? It's a lot. And I actually think the public health officials dilemma here was real, even though in retrospect, you're like, it was a safe decision. However, you do realize that the struggle was authentic and like founded, right? Yeah, well, I, I think a similar thing kind of happened uh, with the hemophilia, but this idea that you've you've worked so hard to gain 
this thing, you know, to gain a safe place to be yourself, essentially. And that this disease is requiring you to specifically give up that thing, which was so hard won. There's no reason. I mean, you take a look at the distrust that was placed towards the government during COVID. And it's not like the government had like built up a great well of trust with the gay community. So it's not surprising that there would be some suspicion about that. And then the next, I think it's the next episode is about hemophilia and, you know, the factor, which is this sort of miracle cure for hemophilia. It just is so much more effective than anything that's ever happened before, but it's mixing like 20,000 different people's blood together and to create this thing. And if even one of them has HIV, that can transmit it to the person with hemophilia who's getting this, this thing. So it's a very similar thing. It's like after a history of just suffering and death up until this moment, when we finally figured out a way for you to have a longer life, a less restricted life, and then that specific thing is taken away by this disease. It's like, why is it this one thing that we finally gained that we now have to give up and and take all these steps back to a place that was not great? Again, without hitting you over the head with it, like I'm doing right now, you know, Leon like really makes a point. And and that's what I was talking about earlier when I was like these sort of social things where I guess I was kind of aware that like it was big in the hemophilic population. And obviously the bathhouse thing was, was a huge news story. But I guess I didn't quite understand like the social implications of it and why it was so objectionable and devastating to those communities. So again, I you know I, th- I thought that was really well done. BP added more than seventy billion dollars to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Kevin, I think it's time uh, for you to do that thing we do and maybe do some business. You mean the business section? Yeah, it's just a business, Kevin. I, I would prefer that you position it that way. Oh, that's okay. You're going to do business, some business. You're going to do your yeah. business section. All right, business section. Hey, on the 151st edition of the Crime Writers on After Show. Wow. Yeah, we missed last week's 150. Oh, And wow. by the way, it was a great episode. People are still talking about our game that we played called... Uh, 
Crime Writers on Past Quiz Crime or Writers something on, like that. What the fuck was that that we talked about? <laughs> yeah. In fact, did it's anybody so good. say they did better than us? Was anybody able to? Uh... Oh no, no, nobody oh. said I would have gotten all that. But they want to hear. They want to test themselves again. Look, for those who didn't hear it, how about we drop in a little clip here? Uh, Toby, can you tell me about Trace? <laughs> Trace? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast. Okay. Uh, it is about a kidnapping. <laughs> okay. Suspect convictions. <gasps> Suspect convictions. I, I think I was probably a thumbs up. Ugh. You were sideways. Okay. Rebecca Lavoy. Up. Oh, you were sideways. Damn it. Laura Bricker, what were you? Um, I have no fucking idea. I'm going to say up. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. I was also up. Our comments <laughs> needs a lot of editing. <laughs> Sounds about right. It's very on brand. We now have our 150. 51st episode and in that we're going to be talking about the latest true crime behind the scenes scandal yeah no it's 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 pretty bad so there's a, a well-known true crime podcaster whose podcast was recently canceled there's an allegation against this true crime podcaster but there's a lot of like behind the scenes scuttlebutt and a lot of stuff going on and and we're just gonna break it down a little bit i think there's going to be more to come and we're just gonna like talk about that a little bit in our after show yeah, so for all the tea, you want to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And there you can also get our latest episode of Married with Podcast. In it, Rebecca and I take a question from someone who wants to know whether or not they should fly across the country to their cousin's wedding just so that some people will go to her brother's wedding the in mother, Florida. The, the mother yeah. is like, if you go with your one-year-old... To your cousin's wedding, maybe people go to your brother's wedding in Florida next year, and I'm like, no, no, no. Yep. Spoiler alert. Yeah. So 150 crime writers on after shows, 150 other episodes of things like Married with Podcast and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and uh, we'd love to have you there. So thus ends, thus ends the business section. The business section. So, Laura, Toby was just talking about the episode that focused on uh, hemophiliacs and their the, med the medication that had been developed that changed their lives. And that is a story that was sort of always sort of in the background of coverage of AIDS. Like, these are the populations that are affected by this. I have never put, heard that story put in the spotlight before. That episode, that, and that was like, that was a focus of a whole episode. Fascinating story. And so many, like unbelievable moments in that on that episode what did you think about that episode of the podcast well i had heard this story before because i have a relative who is cousin eric who is a journalist and he used to be a producer at dateline and then he was working for the new york times i remember at like a family holiday he had this piece of paper and he had confirmation that some of these blood companies, this was literally within the last 10 years. Um, I can look up when it was, but, and so this is when I heard about this um, because he had this, this paper and he was very excited to show me this paper that he had, which was about pharmaceutical companies knowingly selling AIDS infected blood to hemophiliacs in third world countries. And I mean, this is before I even had rage walking and I was rage walking when I heard about this. Cause I'm like, you have hemophilia 
you're already marginalized. And now these drug companies that are purporting to be sending you something to help you are sending you AIDS-infected blood that they know is infected. And they are just like, oh, we got to unload this blood. I mean, the blood's still good. We're going to sell it over there where they don't know any better. So when I heard this episode, I was like, oh, now I'm hearing, I heard the more modern version of what was happening. But to hear that that was an issue going back into the early days of this epidemic, I guess I was just, I don't want to say disheartened, but I mean, I guess it's just discouraging to see and to hear that this population that is really relying on that as sort of a life-saving measure has been for years put into this position of being vulnerable and, and possibly killed because they're just like, here you go, um, have some AIDS-infected blood, which like, what the fuck? Sorry, I just, but, but the fact that it was going on as long as it did, I mean, it's just, it's about money. Yep. Epidemiologists in the in CDC don't just look at raw numbers. They look at what is the curve doing? And this curve was very steep. Whereas blood bankers think of the word bank, they act like bankers. They think of things like inventory and supply. Yeah, but you also imagine, like, when you hear about what the treatments were like before the factor was invented. The, the ice, the ice in the veins. And yes. he's like, and I had to sit there for eight hours with the ice in my veins. And I'm like, what the fuck? You could be expected to live until you were in your 20s. And any time, and you weren't expected to be able to go to college or have a career or have any kind of life at all, and suddenly you could. And then all of a sudden, like, you were faced with potentially giving that up. Like, it all sort of comes into focus about why this would be so critical. But then to hear that the drug companies didn't care. Once it was discovered and once there was a solution that they were like, let's not even test our back supply, it's astonishing. I mean, it's not astonishing to me because I'm not surprised. But I'm also really pissed off about it. Sadly predictable. Sadly predictable. Exactly. So, Kevin, one of the things that was really interesting to me was to hear about, you know, the activist groups, uh, especially within ACT UP, about how they actually created their own subcommittees and, Mm -hmm. you know, learned about science and were really challenging the government on their own science and the way that they were tackling the crisis and were able to actually challenge for instance, Dr. Fauci on the way that he was handling the AIDS crisis and say the way that you're doing these drug trials, by the way, there is a different way and we can prove it. That is another story that I was not aware of because I've heard in the contemporary era criticisms of Fauci's handling of the AIDS crisis in the early days. I did not know specifically. I knew that there he would have been slow to react. I've heard that talking point, but I didn't know about these citizen science like groups that had been formed. Was that a new narrative for uh, yeah. you? I, 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 never, I never heard that. I should not be surprised because ACT UP is a great example, historically, of a grassroots activist group that really positively engaged in confrontational politics. They were not afraid to be confrontational. And, you know, it is more sophisticated than to just say, they were confrontational because they were angry or because they were scared about losing their own lives. There's a lot of that. But it was also, it wasn't just, um, you know, emotional politics. It was smart politics. Uh, they were able to harness a lot of the anxieties around, you know, the mystery of what is this disease and how can we protect ourselves from it and all the other overtones about morality and uh, homophobia and whatnot. So they'll be remembered definitely as a uh, more than just a, a group that did things like the die-ins and you know helped get the AIDS quilt 
going. And as far as, you know, what the demonstration is of their effectiveness, it wasn't that scene where we talk about, like, you know, Fauci going to, you know, sort of these public hearings, public meetings that they have, and having ACT UP come to things, you know, with the government regulators, that, you know, they were able to, maybe not always in the most polite, genteel way, but they were able to move the needle on research protocols that hopefully accelerated, you know, getting those important drugs to market and, let's say, say drugs and bodies. Fauci is such an interesting character in this, and he's such an interesting character in our history in this. And I, I love that he's in the podcast, and I love that we hear tape of him being both a dick <laughs> and attempting and attempting to do something. But Toby, one of the very interesting dynamics to me that happens here is something that we see again and again and again, where in order to move the needle, some activists become aligned with the powers that be. And then people who are sort of really part of the movement feel left behind and on the outside. We see this again and again and again, right? That like people in power end up getting more power by pulling people who are activists into the system. And then people who are really activists end up feeling like there's not being enough done. Then and their group gets splintered. That's something we've seen before and other things that we've covered. And it was a very interesting story to me. And I felt like I understood the Fauci controversy more because when I was listening to the story, you know, up to it, I was like, well, you know, I understand he went to these meetings. It was difficult. But then as that episode ended, I was like, okay, I kind of get it because, you know, those who sort of went along with him and ended up working with him are like, yeah, you know, he tried. We ended up being able to do this and that and this. And then everybody else who was like still kind of in the grassroots side was like, yeah, but here are all the things that the government didn't do that we were still fighting for. And people who were in ACT UP who went there and ended up working with them sort of left us behind. Like that's a typical dynamic, right? Like the the splintering of the activist group, like the ones who end up going with the man and the ones who end up still looking for more. Right. And I think... In this situation, I think it's complicated because the group, what were they called? TAP? The group that decides that they're going to focus on like the medical side of things and, and, and eventually sort of, it doesn't really become co-opted, but but cooperates with, with the government. I mean, they have what, I guess to me, I mean, I don't know a ton about this outside what I'd listened to in the podcast, but have some real issues with the idea that you just got to get these drugs to people as fast as possible. And if that means not going through the normal vetting procedures, you know, these people don't have time to wait, like people are just dying. So, you know, you're better off trying it. And them concluding that that, in fact, is not the best way to do it, that you can, in fact, do harm even in a community that is seeing such high levels of fatalities from the disease. So, you know, you've got that on one side, and then on the other side, you've got, you know, the group that's focused more on the grassroots organizing in that part, being like, what the hell, <laughs> you know, you suddenly you get to, you get to start talking to these government guys and you take their, you take their side on things. Suddenly you're wearing you could, suits and going to meetings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, you can, which you can completely. Sell like, out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can completely see it. Although again, I mean, I, I, I don't know the details beyond what I heard. But you can see the argument made on both sides and why oh, totally. Absolutely. the people who are, became medical experts are like, you, you got to understand, like, this is the stuff that we know about now and there are these problems. And I realize you're angry and you're suspicious and all these things, but this is how we de delegated, 
you know, responsibilities. And this is what we found. Um, you know, you know what I always think about Toby though? Like people in power always end up being happy. People out of power always end up being angry. Like that's what I always think about in these situations. And I'm not saying like, it's like, that's what I always think about. Like, People on the top or or networks are like like look at all the things we did, and people on the outside and marginalized, the ones who are still wearing the two dollars shirts from the flea market, are still like they never end up feeling good at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Well, that's part of being marginalized, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean that's just part and parcel. Well, I'm looking at this medication that I have right here in my hand that my doctor prescribed, and it says EUA, emergency use authorization, right? And so many of our COVID products are like that, that basically the FDA said, here you go. You know, it's an emergency use. We haven't uh, completely vetted it yet. I think there were some lessons that we took from the AIDS crisis. Perhaps that's one of them, that sometimes it's better to move fast. And so long as we don't think what we're giving people is harmful, like it being a horse deworming agent or something like that, that it's better to come on. Laura's uh, a horse get, person. Don't insult her. Like I know. That. I mean, I I have some ivermectin out back if you want it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you take that when you were sick? <laughs> no. Um. Yeah, I gave it to Will last week. <laughs> <laughs> She's making a face, by uh, the way, for our listeners. Okay, super, super. But there are also other look. There are other lessons that like we really could have learned. You know, which is the social one, which is that if we had seen the way people resisted doing. What we now see is sort of the sensible, logical, safe thing, the way they resisted it at first, that we might have been not as surprised when people started doing that. Again, you know, it's like, oh, it's just so easy to wear a mask. Today, we'd be like, it's just so easy. Put on a condom. Today, in 2022, we're like, yes, that makes sense, safe sex. That's something that's ingrained now. Leon really explains why you know, members of the gay community in the 80s at first were resistant to that. And us too. Uh, members of the straight community too. too. We didn't have a... Absolutely. You know, we, sex was sex, man. Um, so a couple of things that we have to get to. Lara Bricker, uh, the guy who was working on the protease inhibitor, who everybody agrees was like the fastest scientist at Merck, who was probably going to get there very quickly dies in a plane explosion over Lockerbie, yeah. Scotland. And the pilot is from the town next to Exeter that was the pilot of that flight. Yes. And Leon very conservatively says, we can't know that the research would have been advanced had he lived. And I'm like, I feel like I know that it research would have advanced if he lived. Wild detail. But we also have to talk about the Clinton administration and the politicization of the fact that we could not talk about sex Yes. Uh, because Clinton was elected and we're not talking about whether or not <laughs> we're not talking about the Clintons and whether or not we think Bill Clinton was a good person or a bad person. We are talking about the fact that we could not talk in that environment publicly about whether or not it was safer to masturbate than put a condom free penis into a person without getting fired as the Surgeon General of the United States of America, even though objectively it is safer to masturbate than put a condom-free penis into a person 
in the height of the AIDS pandemic. Yeah, but the issue is not whether or not masturbation was was about AIDS. It was about whether children should be taught to masturbate. Like that was. It is the that fact that the she thing. could not talk about it. It was the fact that it became so political to teach about safe sex in schools. It became so political your, to do a needle exchange taken, program. Though, that there was there were conservative pressures politics, uh, on the political. Yeah, politics usurp safety. Politics usurp science again and again. And again, because sex, particularly for needle programs and, and, and sex. And as we've learned in every freaking thing we've covered ever, it's always these like bananas, conservative things that like say we can't talk about X, Y or Z. And it always ends up being the safer, more scientific choice. I remember it. I was there. I was alive. It still really mm-hmm. fucking pissed me off. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was saying uh, as I was listening to that, I was like, Joycelyn Alders, you go because she's out there and she's trying to be proactive and she's trying to share the correct information. But, you know, this is at a time, like you were saying, that there's still like sodomy laws in a lot of states. Yep. Then there was the the whole controversy. I think the one that really stuck with me was the like safe needle exchange. And they're like, well, that's like, you know, encouraging drug use. And I'm like, who was I talking to this week? Somebody. And they said, oh, no, this is like how we said to our kid. Okay, we know you're going to smoke weed, but you can only buy it from Uncle Jimmy or the dispensary. Uncle Jimmy. So it's like this whole like and and it was only what was it? 2016. You know why? Finally. Do you know why? Because white people started dying from the opioid crisis. That's why in 2016 needle exchanges became more acceptable. So despite the fact that talking about like protected sex and how like things can be spread during unprotected sex is, you know, I consider sort of a health issue, a medical issue, but because of the political divisiveness, it became a moral issue. And, you know, when you hear how this is all laid out, I mean, it's, it's maddening to listen to because it's like, this could have been slowed so much sooner, except We weren't allowed to talk about it. I mean, it's like the fucking Handmaid's Tale. We can't talk about this stuff. But, you know, it's so different now. I look at, like, my kid and your kids probably, too, In starting in, like, fourth grade had, like, sex ed. It's not different now, Laura. That is all being rolled back. It is all being rolled back. Well, anyway, before it was rolled back, my child had a very thorough health program and health curriculum. I don't know. Did you guys have the one in your health class where you had to put the condom on the banana? I did. (laughs) But I mean, Toby, like our our country's moral superiority is always like put above. I mean, the HPV vaccine, which was was scientifically shown to prevent cancer in future, like in the future, which has to be given to what, like 11 and 12 year olds. Parents don't give it to kids because they're like, I'm giving my my kids permission to have sex in the future. (laughs) It's bananas this is something that will give you prevent your kids from getting cancer when they're in their like when they become adults and parents don't give it to their kids because they're like if i give my kid the hpv vaccine when they're 11 i'm telling them they can have sex this is the same fucking bullshit right yeah i mean it's it's the worst like phony morality in our country like hinders these things that will save people's lives um i i think it comes up it comes up a lot during the AIDS crisis, and it came up to a certain extent during COVID. It certainly comes up for sex education and how when you don't, we have abstinence-only sex education, you get a lot more teen pregnancies. It, it's just the most ridiculous, false moralizing that leads to policy decisions that have dire consequences. And that's 
you know, again, he doesn't hit you over the head with it, but he shows you how it works. It's it's something that I guess will be with us forever because it seems to have come back with a vengeance, like literally within the last couple months. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Fiasco, the AIDS crisis? It's available on Audible. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this latest podcast from Leon Nafok? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go thumbs up on this. I, I will say, listening to this, I feel like I was listening to somebody's like graduate level thesis in terms of the thoroughness and research that was put in and it had every person that you needed to hear from was was included in this. So for me, it did get a little bit dense at times because of that. As I was listening to it, I was like, you know what? I'm thinking how like high school curriculums change. And I'm like, this is something that, you know, I could see them assigning teachers, assigning students to listen to if they are really educating them and giving them context about the AIDS crisis. Like here's some other media that you can consume that is going to give you the whole story. Um, it was it was hard. It was hard to listen to at parts. It was definitely long, but I felt like it did cover everything. And as somebody that was a young kid in the 80s, when this was coming into the public eye, I remember a lot of the fear and the inaccuracies that were being put out at the time. So it was really interesting to listen to how that began, how it evolved, and and where we are now, and and what we did wrong along the way. So um, it's a thumbs up, but uh, it's a long listen and it's a dense listen. So you know it may not be for everybody. Toby Ball. Well, it was for me. Um, I'm a, I'm a history major. This stuff is perfect for me. I've always liked uh, Leon stuff going all the way back to Slow Burn season one. I was in high school and college for most of the 80s uh, when this was all going on. Some of it was reminding me of things. Other things were sort of new or putting up perspective on it. You know, he's got great voices on this. He's got great interviews with people. There are people who are are able to talk about and illustrate various facets of the AIDS era in ways. I mean, it's the whole thing is just heartbreaking, uh, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, I give this a really big thumbs up. I, I, I thought this was really good. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to what he does next. Uh, I wish there are other podcasts that kind of approached 
you know, history with this sort of seriousness of purpose. So yeah, big thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. Toby, I don't know if you remember when John Elway was about to be voted into the Football Hall of Fame. They have like all the eligible sports writers get together for a conference and then somebody is selected to make the case for that particular player. And then the guy who had Elway uh, went up to the microphone and said, it's John Elway, and then sat down. <laughs> well, I feel like you could just go, it's Leon Nafok. And, yeah. Or you could say, it's Leon Nafok, bitches. And you just know it's a good podcast. I like the term that you use, a sense of purpose, and it's true. He's a unique voice. He brings history to us in a way that is entertaining and infinitely interesting. And uh, this was an excellent listen. It's great to hear him again. I totally agree. I love this podcast. To me, the biggest crime about Leon Nafok shows is they're on platforms that not everybody can access. That's not Leon's fault. He's uh, making a living. He's made deals that are with great platforms. They're just not everywhere. I feel the same way, by the way, about uh, Connie. You do you, Leon. I feel the same way about Connie Walker's shows. And it's not, I mean, she works for Gimlet. That's only available on Spotify. And it's like, just for me, a shame that like so many people have written to us and been like, how do I listen to Stolen? And I'm like, Spotify is free. Just go there. This is the same kind of deal. Go to Audible and listen to this show. It's worth searching out. It's worth finding. If you have Amazon, you can listen to this show. You're just going to have to like take the extra step and go get it. And that's just the one thing that bums me out about Leon's work is that it has perennially been on platforms that just aren't in our face everywhere for everyone to listen to. But yeah, this podcast is great. Leon's wonderful. His storytelling is second to none. And um, yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. I will just say one thing. As somebody who in college had a boyfriend who found out uh, was cheating on her when he said, now that I know Magic Johnson has HIV, I'm going to wear a condom with everyone I cheat on you with. Um, oh, my this, fucking God. Yes. Uh, there were a lot of moments in this podcast that really, really, really <laughs> viscerally hit home with me just in terms of like moments in my life, too, and like sex education and just living through it. So if you're like a Gen Xer in particular, like buckle up because there are going to be things that you remember living through uh, and it is completely fucking worth that ride too. All right. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast. A little something I like to call the crime of crime of the week, the week to combat rising inflation. Rapper Snoop Dogg has just given a pay raise to one of his personal assistants. He'd been paying between forty and $50,000 a year to the guy who rolls his blunts. That's right. The D-O-double-G has a man on the payroll whose only job is to scroll him a fatty. The musician and high-profile pot advocate says he met the guy, loved the way he rolled a joint, and hired him <laughs> full time. Snoop told Howard Stern his title is PBR, Professional Blunt Roller. He gets medical, dental, 401k, and all the pot he can smoke. Now, faux shizzle, someone with Snoop's experience can roll his own spliff, but the hip-hop artist really seems to have the money to burn. Panel, this guy's title is Professional Blunt Roller. What is the job title for your new personal assistant. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Oh boy. I mean, I think when I am off working at my little office, my cats are very bored a lot of the time. 
and they have a new favorite toy. So it is cat fake flower toy, um, what should we say, instigator. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> they have this little uh, Gerber daisy fake flower that they are crazy. So they need someone during the day to come and like have them chase it around and also like, you know, chat with them while I'm not here. Tyball, what about you? What is the job title for your new personal assistant? First of all, I'll just say about Snoop that uh, I was watching a documentary about the Stones making Exile on Main Street, and their approach to that whole problem was to teach all the kids how to roll joints. Mm. So while they were like rehearsing and playing tunes, the kids would like be rolling joints for them and bringing them down. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I hate to follow on the cat theme, but um, I, I think the person would be a professional lint roller. Oh, uh, okay. Mm, yeah. PLR, just following the cats around and removing the cat hair deposits, which seem to be all over everything. So, Kevin, what is the title for your new personal assistant? Uh, it is Laundry Sock Matcher. You know what mine is, Kevin? What? Olivia Burdett. Oh, All right, so, she's your personal assistant. Yes, we should probably end on that note. So, uh, Laura Bricker, folks want to follow you and tell you how that you can better entertain your cats and not need a personal assistant. How can they follow you on Twitter? Uh, at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to give you lint rolling tips to get rid of that cat hair. How can they follow you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to give you tips on where your missing socks are, how can they follow you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And Livia Burdett. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Reb Lavoy. It's the same on Instagram. And of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. And also, just go to Facebook, find our page, hit join the group. You will not regret it. We talk about jumpsuits crimes, all kinds of stuff. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get all the content we have back there. It is amazing. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredible Olivia Burdett, who is not my personal assistant. She is amazing. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we still think Jerry Falwell is a giant asshole. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. You can't give each other the look off camera that we're like, uh-oh. No, we can't. Fighting. You know why? Because I'm doing this with my phone. <laughs> my phone is over here. Kevin can't passive aggressively mute and like say shitty things to me when you guys are talking. Oh. (laughs) Say the shitty stuff to each other in the comments, and then we can print it out and we can put it on our Facebook page. We can charge extra. Say, this is what it's like. This is what it's like during recordings.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.